Welcome everyone to the next episode of the Light of Life podcast. I'm your host, Naomi, and today I'm here with Nathan. Nathan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Naomi. Um, it's funny to hear your voice because I've been binging your podcast and now you're speaking directly to me, so that's kind of <laughs> cool. Uh, my name is Nathan Riley. I'm a physician. I, um, I'm a physician who works outside of the medical system, as most people think of it, because I wasn't super happy there. But I do. Um, I have two board specialties, meaning I've done two separate types of training, which one is in OBGYN and one is in hospice and palliative care. So I do a lot of birth and death, and then I have additional training that I've pursued in lifestyle medicine and uh, in order to provide a truly holistic approach to gynecology, women's health, pregnancy, and, and everything else in between. Thank you, Nathan. And um, yes, so you're, you're a medical doctor, and I would really uh, just like to start off by saying I have the highest respect for doctors <laughs> because you all have saved not only my life, but everyone's life. And I'm so curious, um, what what has made you interested in working in the medical field and becoming a doctor? That's a really good question, Naomi. I you know I think most of us doctors we start with two primary um, reasons for going into medicine. The first is probably that we like to solve problems. We've been told we're smart our whole life, and usually that means we've done really good at tests when you get to the end of high school, it's like, well, what do you want to do for, you know, the rest of your life? And it's like, well, I like doing hard things. And that seems like a hard thing. And back when I was in high school, you know, the smartest kids either went into business or medicine or both. It was just what it was just the sort of next step for you. And so despite knowing it was going to be a really hard journey, I wanted to do that. And you know, hey, I also like making people feel better. Who doesn't? Um, I actually struggled until my hospice and palliative care training with really sitting with people who were in pain and -hmm. suffering. Um, So that was sort of like, wow, that'll be something that'll be really helpful to me going forward as uh, I wasn't yet a father, I wasn't yet a husband, but I knew I liked making people feel better. So what better way to to apply the the brains that I'd been, you know, sort of congratulated on um, as an early, you know, at an early age. But what I will say is that throughout the many, many years of training, you don't really you're not really incentivized to think critically. You're really incentivized to follow instructions. And I also wasn't good at following instructions. I liked to, I was curious. I was always not paying attention. I'd get good grades on the test, but I wanted to go and play with this toy instead of playing with the toy that they wanted to. So that was part of the the, the reason I ended up not being super satisfied with, with, with my career choice, because at the end of that saga of years of training and education and gosh, so much money invested into yourself and sacrifice of your own personal life and wants. Um, you were you were being trained to do something very specifically and there was going to be somebody above you who was going to tell you what that was going to be. And I, I didn't end up being very satisfied with that, with that arrangement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. And, um, yeah. <clears throat> and, um, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, like I've, so, so, so I'm like a medical patient. Um, I've had a lot of medical complications. And so uh, with having the medicine and technology that we have today, it has really come to save my life. And um, with, um, with, with being a doctor in that field, um, how have you discovered <clears throat> the, um, um, me- the advancement of medicine and technology uh, benefiting more advances today? 
I'm not so sure that we're going to see much improvements with mm. our reliance on technology and medical research. I actually think that our intuition is really where it's at. Um, <laughs> take childbirth, for example, you know, to have a, to walk out of a hospital with a healthy baby in your hands and you're still living and breathing. That shouldn't be our primary outcome. Like that's a good outcome, but that's not the only outcome. There's all these other things, you know, women want to be um, it's an embodiment experience. It's a spiritual transformation. So a lot of women, even if they have a perfectly normal birth, they feel somehow a little bit traumatized by the experience. It seemed very sterile. There wasn't a lot of attention being paid to them as a whole person or their partner, maybe the father of their baby. And um, so there is a really, really good reason to go to a hospital. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get hit by a car or a motorcycle accident or you, you have a bone sticking out of your arm or somebody stabs you in the head with a knife, like, yeah, you definitely need a surgeon. You need somebody there to fix serious infections. If your lungs stop and you're still, you know, young and, you know, this was completely unexpected, yeah, that's really, really good to have that technology. But what we've sort of started to drift away from, I think, incorrigibly, is that we aren't spending as much time with the people that we're there to care for. So a large part of what I do now, I I attend home births. I practice largely as a midwife more than a doctor. Even though I have all those tools, I don't have to use them um, because I get to know a person so well throughout the course of their pregnancy. I get to know their story, their beliefs, their values, maybe what their past experiences were like. And that is equally important um, as my own experience with various things and the, the research that's coming out of the major institutions and medical journals. So... I do think that we're going to be getting better at acute care, but I don't think the hospitals and the doctors and clinicians that are working within the medical industrial complex, that they're necessarily the right person for the job of caring for people with chronic disease or preventing those chronic diseases. That's not our wheelhouse. We're good at attending to things with heavy dose, you know, high dose pharmaceuticals and surgery. And that's not always what people need, but that generally is what you get when you go to the doctor's office. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, um, um, yeah, you, there's, there are certain chronic illnesses you can't really prevent, but you can look for treatment options that can help the, the symptoms and help the person feel better. And yeah, yeah. yeah um, <laughs> you know, um, <clears throat> considering your own experience being a medical doctor, what has been the most challenging part of being a medical professional? Well, you, you had a, a, a recent interview with somebody who was talking about burnout and adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. and uh, I thought that was a really nice interview. And I think that this topic of adrenal fatigue is really important because the pressure that we put on these physicians to be working nonstop every day for their whole life and not even necessarily getting paid that well. You know, most physicians are not rolling in money. Meanwhile, the heads of hospitals, the CEOs, the business people that I mentioned back in high school, they're the ones that are at the top of the chain, and they're the ones dictating how much can we pay people renting out their time to do these procedures that are going to make the hospital system more money, and ultimately the CEO. A lot of nonprofit hospitals have CEOs that are making in the millions. $18 million is, is you know, Kaiser Permanente's former CEO is making that. So the reason I say all of that is that the doctors, the nurses, the physical therapists, I mean, down to the janitorial staff, these are people that really, really care about the experience of a person who is sick in the hospital. And um, 
the phys, you know physicians like me, especially as OBGYNs, notoriously it's a very hard job because there's a lot of like emergency things that happen if you have to have an emergency C-section or whatever. So you, you oftentimes have doctors that are staying in the hospital for one, two, three days at a time. They're getting paid, you know, a little bit better hourly for that, but they're 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 never seeing their kids, they're never seeing their family. They're, they're, they're not sleeping in a comfortable bed. They've got bright lights waking them up at all hours of the night. And then we also have a lot of really bad quality food and water in hospitals. It's maybe the not, not the best drinking water. Um, it's probably filtered, but is it really the best, most nourishing living water that you can get from like, you know, some really, really nice filtration system in your house? You add, you know, vegetable oils into the foods and there's a lot of sugary foods around at all times. I found myself about halfway through residency, which is four years of 100 hour work weeks, of grueling training. I found myself um, in adrenal fatigue. And the reason I, I what happened was I was trying to maintain my physique, keeping my six pack and uh, I was cutting my sleep time even shorter. So I was on a six week rotation when I was only. Uh, I was working every night and I was sleeping during the day. I had about a six hour gap to sleep. So I would cut my sleep down to four or five hours and I would stop at the gym and crush out like a really hard workout and then get to work. And sure, my physique still looked good on the outside, but on the inside, I didn't realize that my, a lot of my, my nervous system and my adrenals, they were all shutting down. And when uh, this got bad enough, I remember I was drinking a beer. I don't, we don't drink a lot anymore, but at the time, you know, you kick back with a beer at the end of the night um, I remember having a beer and I started getting chills, rigors. And I was like, Phew, I'm getting flushed. What the heck's going on here? I thought I had like a stomach bug or something. So I got into bed and my wife tucked me in and, and I woke up the next day and went back to work. It was like, I was sweaty because I had all these covers and I had beanie on and everything, but I didn't think anything of it. Two weeks later, it happened again. And then it happened a third time about two weeks after that. And that's when I sought out medical attention. And the doctor said, everything's fine. Your blood pressure is a little bit high or hemoglobin A1C, which is a is sort of our, our primary marker for diabetes. That was up a little bit. And my white count was down. And I was like, there's got to be something wrong with me. Like, this doesn't seem normal. So I did kind of the homework, you know, for myself. And I realized, oh, my God, I've just been pushing myself too hard. I'm not sleeping enough. I'm not eating the greatest food in the hospital. And I'm working myself out to the bone and literally, literally killing myself. Um, so I made a whole bunch of adjustments and I ended up in adrenal fatigue again in the future when we had kids. I got shingles once because I wasn't sleeping enough. All of this is to say that the hardest part I think about being a uh, in the healthcare system is that there is very, very little self-care happening. It's not incentivized. Nobody's giving you bonuses for taking care of yourself. And if you can't take care of yourself, how are you supposed to be patient and, and present with a person who really needs your your, your insights? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the hardest. I think that's the hardest part. We're not putting our, our oxygen mask on before helping others. And that that ends up burning a lot of us out. Suicide rates of, amongst physicians, I'm sure you know, are very, very high. And I think that's a big part of it. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I can, I can imagine like, uh, you know, the amount of time I've spent in the hospital, um, like the doctors and nurses are like always there make, uh, taking yeah. care of you. And um yeah, I had a, I had a surgery that was like twelve hours long, and so it's it, it's a lot of hours. I'm I'm sure for doctors, um, um, and and so I'm I'm sure it's a it's a very hard job sometimes. Um, um, and and while we acknowledge that, um, I I w- I would like to ask, um, what has 
been the most beneficial part of being a um, being a medical doctor and helping others. Well, if you compare physicians to any other healthcare professional, we have the most respect. We've gone through the most schooling for the most part. Um, if you're like me and you went for extra training after residency, you just have way deeper of a toolkit. And if you can develop a reasonable bedside manner, people are going to seek you out. They really trust what you have to say. And that comes with great responsibility because you have to really be up to date with all the research. And if you want people to revere you and respect you all this time, you have to stay up to date all the time. So I think the best part about being a doctor is once you have credentials after your name, like an MD or a DO, um, you can really do quite a bit of things. You know, you can get a job doing virtually anything and getting paid very well to do it. Um, and so once you've put in that work, you can decide for yourself, how do I want to show up as a healer? Do I really want to be working, you know, 60 hours straight? Um, do I really want time to be with my family? And if you decide, hey, the working within the conventional model, as I did, if you decide that that's not for you, a spectrum of other things that you can do with a little creativity and critical thinking in order to get yourself out of that and continue to do the thing that you, you know, hold so near and dear. Have, have you ever experienced a feeling, um, uh, uh, feeling, uh, um, relieved and satisfied, um, seeing patients, uh, be able to go home, um, healthy and happy? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, I had, um, I don't know, do you have any children, Naomi? No. When you have a baby, there's a lot of fear around it because there is always that small possibility that something terrible can happen. And I had a, mm -hmm. a woman come to see me. She didn't have a established care with another doctor and I was the on-call guy. So I took care of her and she was actively, you know, in the labor process. A baby was going to come out, but she had said she had had prior C-section and there's a risk the uterus can rupture, open up where the where the prior incision had been made. So that's called a, a uterine rupture and that's the dreaded risk. It's a less than 1% risk, but it can happen. And she had her baby, but at the very last minute, something was off. The baby wasn't coming out right, and I had to do a couple maneuvers. And and then um, she had her baby. The baby was fine, but her blood pressure was really low, and her heart rate was really high, and I was really worried about her. She didn't look well, and I called some other staff in to take a look. And you know, within an hour or so, I had her in the operating room, and she had apparently ruptured a hole in her uterus, not from the prior incision, but on the backside of the uterus, which is completely unpredictable. Like that stuff can just happen randomly. So I rushed her to the operating room and we opened up her abdomens full of blood. We had to take out her uterus because it was completely just torn apart by this rupture. And um, she ended up getting a bunch of blood transfused and I had to call in another surgeon to help because it's a really challenging procedure to do a C-section or to do a hysterectomy. Uh, I may have said C-section just a second ago. I had to do a hysterectomy and remove her uterus um, and then close up her belly and hope for the best. Well, she ended up only staying a day or two in the ICU. And as soon as I had left the operating room, I didn't know how she was going to do. I was really worried about her, but her, her partner, the father of her baby was outside and he gave me this big hug and I started crying and he was crying. It was just such a, an emotionally challenging night. It was like at four in the morning too. It was really rough. And you know, sure enough, two days later, she went home and she was totally fine. Of course, she didn't have a uterus anymore. And that is tragic, you know, in, in, in other ways, but she wasn't dead. And this baby was going to have their mom. Well, she, I received a little gift bag from her. She was like a crafty person. And she had created this little, um, like a pen holder for my desk. And I still have it. Um, in fact, 
It's sitting right there. I can actually see it right now. I saved it because it was a re- it was a reminder that while birth sometimes doesn't even have to take place in a hospital in order for mom and baby to be just fine, sometimes we really, really do need to have surgeons around that can do what I did. And I did truly save her life. And I still remember that, that when people want to speak poorly about OBGYNs in the hospital, like, I get it. But there are also times when we really, really, really need the system to do what the system does best, which is that acute care medicine that I mentioned before. And that is a moment that um, it really rattled me, Naomi. It really shook me up. It was so scary to see all that blood and to have to do that Mm -hmm. surgery in the middle of the night after she had just had a baby. I mean, it was just a very, very bizarre scenario. But it stuck with me because it, it really got me back to that 18-year-old self when I was like, okay, I'm good at figuring out problems and I want to help people. And that scenario required me to really go deep into my skill set. And I performed and I did the job. And that really feels good. Sometimes we just need a win like that. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I, I just can't, um, I can't say it enough. I'm, I'm, all kinds of medical professionals you guys really do save lives and you really truly are heroes and i i certainly like i absolutely would not be here today without without any of you because all all the doctors the cardiologists the nurses the surgeons all all of you um in the medical field i i would not be here today without all of you um, and so, um, can I ask you? Can I ask you what you? Yeah. You know, I, I don't actually know if in oh. my binge podcast if I ever gathered your story. Can you tell? Okay. Just yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a congenital heart condition. I've had uh, five open heart surgeries and an emergency pacemaker surgery. Um, I've let's see. I I went in a heart failure when I was fourteen. Uh, my oxygen saturations were fifty, and um after receiving an open heart surgery that closed the hole in my heart and replaced my tricuspid valve because apparently I did not have a tricuspid valve in my heart. Mm. Um, that was really shocking <laughs> to everyone. Um, and You're supposed to have that. You're supposed to have that valve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was really crazy. Um, uh, my oxygen saturations were 100, turned to 100%. And uh, it's just been, it's been the best thing that ever happened to me. And it absolutely saved my life. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's good that you had surgeons. You know, mm-hmm. were, were you a child when that, when you had that procedure? Yeah, I was 14. Mm-hmm. 14. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Did you have something called, um, was it Eisenmenger syndrome? Is that what they called it? Or hypoplastic? Oh. What was the condition? Um, so I have Epstein's anomaly of the tricuspid oh, valve. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Wow. That's yeah. cool. I mean, thank you for sharing. I know it's not oh, cool yeah. back then for your parents. I'm sure that was very, very hard. But mm-hmm. I, I, I think that that illustrates just beautifully how sometimes we need a little help. Like sometimes we need people to be trained to do these things. Yeah. You know, we can't just completely forsake the medical system um, of which I'm mm-hmm. actually very critical at times because for the reasons I've described, you know, healers that are broken down can't take care of people. But gosh, it's so fortunate that you had surgeons that yeah. were there with you to save you. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't be having this beautiful conversation. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm so glad you wanted to do this podcast because um I um because you know it's 
it's really the doctors that, that have really, um, is the reason why I'm still here today to be able to do this podcast to uh, spread awareness. And yeah. um, is there anything else you would like to share, Nathan? Um, no, I, I mean, I have a couple uh, resources for people online. They can find <laughs> me at belovedholistics.com. And um, I'm sure you'll like put the, the link or something somewhere. I also have a course that's coming out in the next month or so. It's called the Born Free Method. And it really covers everything from be start to finish um, related to pregnancy and postpartum. And so we'll be enrolling our first cohort into that course. It's a self-guided online tour, but you also get weekly calls with me or my co-creator, Sarah Rosser, who's a farm midwife down in Tennessee, Anime's Legacy. And we together put this incredible course together. It's really, uh, really a phenomenal undertaking. But um, you can find that at, at um, bornfreemethod.com or you can just, it'll be linked on my website as well. And I have a podcast as well. It's called The Holistic OBGYN where we uh, go a little deeper on some of these topics. And, and thank you so much again for having me. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you a little bit. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you for coming on to my podcast. I think this is going to really, you're going to really help people and inspire people. Thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs>